Hello, welcome to the Inland Sessions podcast. This is our opportunity to share conversations with regional artists about themselves, their passions, and their work. I am your host, Zana Morrow. Thank you for joining us. Introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced. <laughs> so my name is David Larson. I'm a composer, saxophonist, and music educator here in Spokane, Washington. I uh, teach at Spokane Falls Community College, where I'm the instrumental music director. And on top of that, I'm a pretty active uh, performer. I have lots of albums out on various sources, including the German record label G2. Um, and I have Two releases coming out this calendar year, one with the clarinet great Ken Poplowski and another with uh, Daryl Yokley and Zakai Curtis. So lots of fun stuff. How would you describe your musical background? How would you describe your music? Sure. Um, well, I, I'm a jazz musician with a capital J, as they say, meaning that I play the kind of music that when people hear it, they say, oh, that's jazz music. I typically play instrumental music, um, and it's pretty straight ahead. I... I my earliest um, saxophone influences and musical influences were cool jazz artists um, from L.A. My original sax teacher was a studio musician in L.A. in the 1960s, so he was best friends with all these people. And so when I would hear the music, I could ask him questions, and he had firsthand literal knowledge of these things, and it really fascinated me. And so I spent a lot of time listening to Jerry Mulligan and Paul Desmond, Zoot Sims, Al Cohn, um, you know, Jimmy Jufri, and the list goes on and on. And I just really got uh, fell in love with that. And so I've spent kind of my career sort of trying to use that influence, but not kind of recreate it, trying to move forward and, you know, keep, keep the music moving um, with that kind of great sound in mind. What about your early introduction to music? Like, where did you first fall in love with music to actually start pursuing a musical degree and and find your true love? So, um, I'm the only music person in my whole entire family. There's nobody who um, played music or anything like that. And so, basically, what ended up happening was, I remember, I think I was in, I'm going to say kindergarten, first grade, doesn't matter, the high school jazz band came and they played in the gymnasium and we all sat and listened. And I distinctly remember being fascinated by that music. And, and, you know, you're really young, everything is cool, but just something about that really worked for me. And I, and I took that with me and, um, I, I didn't take music very seriously. I was in band in school like everybody else, but I never had any private lessons and, and it wasn't until I got to high school when um, I was going to record stores. I know, like a little bit of history there, but Tower Records, right? And uh, I bought a John Coltrane album, and it just, it blew my mind. I just couldn't believe how interesting it was and how exciting it was. And I, I basically went home and I sold all my Nirvana albums and all that stuff I'd been buying 
And I started on this really bumpy, awkward quest to kind of learn about the music in a teeny tiny little town in Oregon called Hood River. And those of you who know it now as being kind of a posh resort town, you didn't live there in the 1980s. Um, and so long story short is um, I didn't really have any help. I didn't have any guidance. And but I joked with my friends I was going to grow up to be a jazz musician. And, you know, in the midst of that, I got a near perfect score on the SAT in math. So I started as a physics major like my brother. That was boring and I couldn't handle it. And so I just started doing music full time. And lo and behold, years later, I, I lived up to my promise, which was I became a jazz musician. So that's that's kind of the story there. Well, since your family weren't musicians, what were they? What kind of background did you have? So uh, my mom was a nurse and a public health official, um, and she thanks every day that she got to retire before COVID. Um, and my father was an architect, and so I grew up uh, walking through job sites and uh, walking through stud bays and seeing construction, and obviously my mom doing public health and all that. And so you know, we were we were a pretty typical kind of middle-class family just kind of doing the thing. Um, but no one in my family is, is super arts enthused, you know, that we went to a few concerts and we would go to things, but you know, they didn't, they didn't chase after their favorite musicians. And my mom likes to listen to music casually, but she doesn't have like a, an extensive collection of, oh, I love this artist. And so I own all their albums. And it just, you know, it was just something that was it was my passion, and you know, when I was in high school, like quote unquote everybody else, I played a little guitar because it was cool and all that. But yeah, it was just it was a discovery really for myself and my own little kind of journey. And it never was something that as a family we all did together. It was that was just my thing. How did your family see it? Did they understand your passion for music? Did it make sense to them? Um, well, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I've never had any blowback. I didn't have one of those families where I had to prove anything. But I do remember my mom took me out for dinner one night, and she said, okay, you, you know, you're you're doing the music thing, not the science thing, and you have uh, real champagne tastes, and how are you going to do that on a beer budget? And uh, so, you know, it was just always my goal because I'm a pretty driven person how do you make a career out of this? How do you understand what it's like? And I always tell students and other people that you can't ask a regular person who has a nine to five job what it's like to be a musician because it's not a job, it's a lifestyle and you have to learn how to make money and things. And, you know, I tell my students, I own a house, I drive a car, all these things. I've never been a starving artist because I was always focused on if this is going to be my career, it has to be a career. It can't just be this, you know, fun thing on the weekends. And, it, you know, I really have to turn income. I have to be very dedicated to it or else it really won't pay off. And and like I said, my family was really understanding to that. Nobody ever kind of gave me a hassle about it. It was just, I you know, I had to kind of find out how to do it. So I hung around older musicians and I really got to know the scene and, you know, did a little bit of everything, recording, performing and playing in bars, playing on symphony stages, all these things until you figure out where your niche is in the market and then away you go. So when it came to your own uh, performance style and your own music education as you were really deciding to commit to it, um, what did that path look like for you? Um, so I went to a really small college for my bachelor's degree. It's called Pacific University. It's in Forest Grove, Oregon. And um, its biggest claim to fame is it's the oldest uh, college uh, west of the Mississippi. 
um, but it's still a very small college. And I kind of had free reign there. And, you know, they, they didn't actually have a jazz department, nor did they have a jazz degree. Yet my senior recital was original jazz compositions and um, arrangements for a group of musicians I hired to play. And they just gave me free reign because the one thing they knew was he's working really hard. We don't necessarily know how to help him, but, but you know, look at what he's turning out. And so they just gave me that carte blanche. And that original sax teacher, his name's Steve Kravitz, um, he was really influential. And, and not so much in the, oh, we play gigs together on the weekends or anything. I'm not even sure if we've ever played a gig together but he would just talk to me about music and he would introduce me to people and it, and it just allowed me to become a musician and become a better player and get to know the scene and how it worked. And it was just really inspiring. And I just did a little bit of everything. If somebody said they needed a musician, I went and I tried it. And I've done everything from, I played in a ska band in Portland called the Scavengers. I know, great name. Um, and, you know, I, I got fired from that band because I complained too much because I wanted to, like, learn the music and they just kind of wanted to hang out. And I, I just, it just didn't work for me. But I, I always really wanted to play jazz. So every time I got the opportunity, I'd put together an ensemble and I would play the music I loved with kind of no apologies because I'm a firm believer that if you present high quality art people will like it they say they don't like jazz they say they don't like rap they say they don't like this but if you present it in a way that really is palatable and accessible good music is good music and i've never had a situation where i can't find a gig anywhere there's there's always somewhere to play but it's about playing the game and again, making that music something that people want to listen to, not just an abstract concept, which is a hard thing for some people. And that's kind of been one of my things about becoming a better kind of commercial musician of like, okay, if I play like this, I can get this gig if I play like that. And so not to sound like I sold out, but I, I chose a style that would help me feel artistically valid, but also feel commercially successful. Well, I mean, that's a big question. Is that is that something you obviously thought about and struggled with, trying to bridge that gap between your own personal beliefs and your own personal skills and your own personal drive and what you know is going to keep your career um, manageable? Yeah, and, well, and, and I always told people I didn't want to be famous. I wanted to be infamous. You know, I wanted to be that person. Oh, you got to know about that guy, right? And and, you know, I would listen to kind of some forms of popular music that are very repetitive that, yeah, maybe they get the million plays on Spotify or whatever, but it just wasn't for me. I, I would look for the things that had more merit, that had some meat on the bones. And that's what I wanted. And so I always would go after that. And so when there was an opportunity, I would go for it. And so, yeah, it was it's just you have to find your market, and it's an interesting thing once you kind of get through the, the looking glass and you're on the other side, you're making your living, and you start to realize that there's all these great musicians who maybe they're really great at one specific thing, and they make that their career, and that's awesome. I mean, good on them. I mean, could can we blame somebody like Kenny G for, you know, going triple platinum playing kind of basic silly songs i mean it, that's what a great way to live right and so you know you just have to find what it is that you can be passionate about but also has universal appeal in some format because 
you know, you can't please all the people. There's always a market, and you just have to find that Well, I think that gives us a segue into your recordings and productions. Can you tell me more about how that started for you and and where you think it's going sure um i mean the 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 50 cent version would be that um almost immediately after i really discovered that i could do music i started trying to write music and and it was about five years before i truly had real instruction in composition and you know there's a lot of people who learn how to do this um, by themselves which is really great but um, you know, I always say it's like you can do it by yourself and that's kind of slow and cumbersome or you can just ask somebody who knows the answer and they'll just tell you. Uh, but anyway, so I started and and uh, when I was real young, you know, I'm going to say 1920, I played in a band with a guy who at the time even was just literally ancient. Um, his name was Bergie Crandall. And uh, for the music nerds out there, he actually took sax lessons from Santee Runyon of Runyon Mouthpieces when he was a kid. He hired me for his band. I played Barry Sax in his band. And he started needing charts. He's like, oh, I really want a chart of Black Magic Woman by Santana for this swing band. And I was like, all right, well, let me give it a shot. And so I, I kind of put it together. And, you know, I've always been really good with chords and stuff. So I just sort of like, you know, twisted the knife until I made it work. And I wrote, I'm going to say 12, 13, 14 arrangements for that band. And, and I played with it for several years. And that was kind of my introduction. And then Toward the end of my college career, I started to really try and write my own melodies and write my own chord progressions, and it, it was hit or miss. I, I have basically one tune that I wrote years ago that still is with me. It's called Downtime, and I've recorded it a few times, and it's kind of the only one that had enough meat on its bones that it, it still will stand up to the test of time. A lot of the other ones are a, a little childish or whatever, immature, whatever you want to say, but... And then I, uh, I got a master's degree in jazz composition at the University of Oregon, but it really helped me understand the mechanics. Like, How do you physically do it? How do you write for three trumpets and three saxophones? How do you make that sound good? And that's what I learned there was a lot of the, as we call it, the craft. It's just the physical, put it down on paper kind of stuff. And that was really helpful. From there, I started doing more arranging for people. I orchestrated a couple full-length musicals while I lived down there. I wrote a lot of big band arrangements and stuff. And, and again, a few of them from that era survive to this day and really work. And that really kind of set the stage for um, about when I was 25, 26. I had a teaching job. I had lucked into a, literally, I was playing six hours a week of jazz music for money, which sounds crazy, but literally every two nights a week, three hours, just improvising. And that really set the stage to start putting out content. And I, I spent a little time teeter-tottering a little bit because I wasn't feeling like my music was going anywhere. I got really interested in production and microphones, and I I opened up a media company where I was, in addition to teaching, but I was also doing videography and audio production and recording and all sorts of stuff. And then um, after about 10 years of all of that stuff combined, I, I realized I, I needed a change and I wanted to really focus in on being an artist. I, I was tired of being pulled six ways from Sunday. 
I wanted to be artist David. And so I started applying for college teaching jobs. And that's when I got my position at Spokane Falls Community College. I moved up here and I started practicing more and becoming more focused. And, and that first year I moved to Spokane, I cut my first, I'll call it, mature album. It was called uh, One of a Kind. I went to a real recording studio. I played my music my way. I really practiced it up. And that really kind of helped me realize that this is where I wanted to be. This is what I wanted to be doing. And then since then, I've just been, you know, consistently churning out new music. Um, I generally publish two to three big band charts a year. I have three releases coming out this calendar year. I also have another EP coming out on G2. And through all of this work, silly things like my social media works now. Like when I post something, people see it. It's amazing. And, and you know, people actually listen to my music and not just five people, but thousands. And, and, and just kind of learning who I am as an artist and then becoming genuine. The, one of the best compliments I ever got was a friend of mine who he's a very dark person. And I say that silly. And if he ever hears this, he'll know what I'm talking about. But he doesn't pull punches and he feels no no reason to be nice if there's no reason to be nice. But he told me, he said, you know, this sounds like what you were trying to do. This sounds like cool jazz. This sounds like you. It is your voice. And and that's the best thing I can hope for is I don't want to sound like anybody else. I just I want to sound like me. I want to do a, a genuine representation of who I am. And that's kind of where I've felt like I've ended up. And I'm I'm pretty excited for the future. I'm pretty excited to see where I'm going. I have, I don't feel like I have a reason to slow down. And, and right now, about the only thing I'm really trying to do is just get out there and play a little more. I'd, I'd love to be able to share this a little more. Well, I mean, acknowledging that acknowledgement as that power of encouragement to remind you that you are on the right path. Is that meaningful to you? Oh, oh yeah. It, it's, I, I can't tell you, like, I don't want to say that, like, I'm an insecure person, but I definitely, like all artists, you know, you wake up some days and you're like, okay, what's coming next? What what am, what do I have coming? What do I have to look forward to? And, and you know, it's a little bit of anxiety. Um, and But when you get that kind of affirmation, when somebody comes up to you and says, oh, like, you're going to do that thing because that's what I want. That's what I want, you know, and it's like when somebody's like, no, no, no. That thing that you do, that's what I need to make me feel complete. I need that that you provide. And that's, I, I can't think of a better compliment. I mean, it's just, it's such a high. So, Can we go back to that John Coltrane album that sure. lit you up and kind of changed the direction of how you listen to music and how you experience music? What album was it? That was John Coltrane's Blue Train. And that was uh, one of his seminal albums from the uh, late 1950s. I'm going to say 1957, if I remember correctly. It has Curtis Fuller, Lee Morgan, just some really fantastic players. And it was kind of a bridge between sort of traditional straight-ahead swing, jazz, big band, and the kind of music that is to come. And John Coltrane was a fantastic composer and just learning and hearing this music and starting to digest it. And one of the things I clearly remember about that is I listened to that album so much that I could just hum along with every single solo, all the melodies and all this stuff. And it wasn't just like that I listened to it four or five times. I mean, 
I listened to that thing on loop constantly, and it gave me an appreciation for all the finer details. Why is it that this is so much better than that thing over there? And interestingly enough, I mean, I have so much respect for players like John Coltrane, even though I don't try and play like that personally, you know, when you hear it and understand it, you think that is a true master. That is an incredible thing. And that album, like I said, really opened a lot of doors for me. And then from there, I just started picking up random things. I mean, somebody bought me Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, um, a, like maybe the Christmas after that. And I listened to it a ton. And it was hilarious because it wasn't until I was like 18, 19 years old that I realized there were two sax players on that album because I just listened to it. I wasn't, you know, analyzing it, you know, but it was like, you know, I, I wasn't acknowledging that there's John Coltrane and there's Cannonball Adderley. I was just hearing saxophone solo for like 10 minutes. And I was like, this is fantastic. So it's it just silly things like that. But it really, it made me start to dig deeper and really look for things. And I started to kind of develop tastes and preferences. And I'd continue to buy John Coltrane albums. But then I started to find other performers like Paul Desmond and Jerry Mulligan and, um, you know, things like that. And it just, it started opening up the floodgates and made me realize that I don't really like vocal music nearly as much as I like instrumental music. And you know, I am a saxophonist, and, and weirdly enough, it is my favorite sound to hear played really well. I mean, there's great sounds in all places, but that is, that's my voice, so. Well, I'm excited to hear your music. Okay. Um, can you tell me a little bit about where you're going to start musically? Oh, gosh. Well, why don't I start with that one tune I mentioned a little bit ago. Um, it's called Downtime. Downtime. Yeah, mm -hmm. and... Just, just so we're clear to the listening audience, I am horrific at naming tunes. The titles mean literally nothing. Um, uh, some of them have funny jokes behind them. But uh, yeah, this one was just, it was kind of a cool, easy breezy tune, and it just is some down time. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. <laughs> one of your earliest compositions can you do a new one for us sure okay
drink of water. I bet you need that. That was hot. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Phew. Uh, so yeah, that uh, second composition I was performing is entitled Archways. I, I was just monkeying around with a, a kind of a compositional technique where um, the, the chords are in one key and the melody sort of in a different key and I'm kind of blending them together. How did your, the, your skills in math inform your music playing? <laughs> I don't want to go on too long, but uh, things that you learn is, um, so I'm severely dyslexic. And so when I was younger, I was in special reading groups and all these things. And and my teachers would call in my parents and say, okay, make sure David can tell the difference between like small and large men and women so he doesn't walk in the wrong bathroom. Because reading was a real challenge for me. Spelling was terrible and all this stuff. But math and stuff really made sense. And so you fast forward through my education career and I get toward the end of high school and I start to realize that for some reason, looking at music doesn't trigger the, um, the dyslexia. And so I've always been a really literate, very good reader. And to this day, one of the things I can do that it, it, it seems benign, but it's actually a little more difficult than it might sound, is I can look at a set of chord changes or a melody and I can play it right off the page very fluidly because that just, it filters right through and it goes through that center of my brain. Because like I said, on the SAT, I got a 798 out of 800 in math. And, you know, it's like, so that just filters right through. And so as I went through college, anytime I, I would be dealing with notes and music and all that, it just really seemed pretty effortless. I made a student mad one time when I was getting my master's. We were taking jazz arranging and you know, we're sitting there waiting for the professor and, and I'm just kind of shooting the breeze. And I was like, oh yeah, man, th this class is so easy. It's like, they want you to write one big band chart in 10 weeks. I mean, like, come on, I just did that last weekend and I'm ready to go. And he turned to me and he said, this is the hardest class I've ever taken in my life. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you just like, but it just, it makes so much sense to me. And, I, and weirdly enough, I'm not a I'm not the perfect by ear musician, 
Um, but when I have all those things in front of me, like it just, it's like the matrix thing where you see all the, the things going on. And I actually prefer to read music over memorize it because when I see it, all of a sudden I can see all these implications and it helps me so much. And it's just part of that educational thing. And I do have a PhD in music and I've just learned how to learn, you know, because reading is really hard and things like that. But because I can kind of take what I can do well and then I can sort of use that per paradigm to help me in other things. And so, yeah, long story short, I'm a humongous music nerd and and I can, I can wax poetically about theory and composition for hours because that's the kind of stuff that just excites me. I love it so much. When you're trying to excite your students or trying to excite really anyone with music, what do you steer them to? What do you say, listen to this and tell me about it? Um, or let me tell you about it. <laughs> um, well, so one of the things I like to point out, um, and again, this is style independent because there's classical music that fall into this category, but there, there's like this, you know, scientists who talk about music, there's this silly little concept that goes like this, which is, um, you know, there's the junk food syndrome where if I play a really cool riff or a really catchy thing, we like that. Oh, that was cool. And so just like a Dorito, well, just give them another one and they'll just eat it and it's good. It's simple. It's blasé. And so what I like to do is I like to point out the detail. Why is it that a, a song written by Stevie Wonder might be a little bit better than a song by Rihanna. Why is it that this Earth, Wind, and Fire song is a classic versus, you know, listening to some, you know, Duran Duran thing that might not be as good? And and helping them understand that it's kind of style independent, right? There's great music in all these places. And what is it that makes, you know, Michael Jackson's Thriller album, why is that such a masterpiece of pop music versus you know, maybe an ABBA tune that's just catchy and fun, but it, you know, I, I, I'd have a hard time. I, I tell my students the best compliment I can give a piece of music is if I listen to it again. After I've heard it once, if I have to hear it again because there's something else I want to digest, boy, that means something. And so that's what I'm always trying to point out to them. That's what I'm always, you know, when we listen to things in class, I'm like, oh, check this out. Check, you know, go to the piano, play it, like, hear how this interacts, hear how the drummer is doing that and everything, and really getting them to listen, not necessarily critically, but deeper. And it would be the same, like, the analogy would be a gourmet hamburger versus McDonald's. McDonald's tastes good, it's fine, but it's not the same as this other thing over here that was handcrafted with all of these, you know, a, attention to detail, and how can we get it so that we crave more out of our art because I think that's one of the failings sometimes. Because you mentioned the Thriller album, mm -hmm. I'd like to ask a specific personal question, okay. which is uh, your comparison between Quincy Jones as a composer, arranger, and Quincy Jones as a producer. So Quincy Jones is a really interesting character. Um, so he grew up in Seattle and he was hanging out with this nobody named Ray Charles. Like, who knows? Who knows that guy? Yeah, who knows? And um, he started be getting, becoming interested in composition. 
And this was back in the real late 1940s, going into the 1950s. He hooked up with a lot of really great jazz artists and become really well known for his skills in this. And then you fast forward a few decades, and much like people like um, Herbie Hancock and stuff, where he looked in the mirror one day and he saw how musical trends were going. And not so much that Quincy Jones, the composer, is different than Quincy Jones, the producer, but what Quincy Jones did is he, he saw what was coming out and he heard things that he liked and he what he did is he took that attention to detail and that ability to create amazing art and he walked over and he tapped this person on the shoulder and he said, hey, let's take this to the next level. Let's, let's increase this because I, I wholeheartedly believe that one of the reasons that Michael Jackson's Thriller is so amazing is because Quincy Jones was standing there going, hey, wait a minute, wait. Let's do this. Hey, let's change up this. Let's and he was really adding in that attention to detail that made it into essentially a masterpiece, right? And that's and he learned that by being a composer, being a jazz musician, being around these great artists. And then he just took that. And Herbie Cancock did the same thing as he progressed out of playing traditional straight ahead and and freeform jazz. He just said, "Hey, let's let's write Chameleon and let's Take that same musical intensity, but let's put it into a package that we can give to this new audience who craves a different texture. And, you know, that's kind of an amazing thing because you could become famous playing music of yesteryear in a way that appeals to people who like listening to old recordings, right? You could you could play what the here and now, or you can push the envelope. And some of these people, like Quincy Jones, I think he was really good at He's pushing the envelope, but he's pushing it in a very gentle way. So, you know, silly things like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Where would Will Smith be had Quincy Jones not walked in and said, I've got a great idea? <laughs> you know, so there you go. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time. Would you do us a favor and just give us one more uh, kind of a closing post-introduction? Yeah. A, an epiduction. Yes. And, <laughs> and uh, tell people where they can find your music. Yeah, David Larson, um, again, saxophone composer, educator. I teach at Spokane Falls Community College. I have my music everywhere, and it's really under my name, David Larson, L-A-R-S-E-N. Uh, you can go to my website, larsonjazz.com. Um, I do play a lot around town, and so check out all those sources. But, um, yeah, I do a lot of recording, and I think that's kind of the best way to get started is track those down because... Uh, I don't do as much touring as other artists. I do a lot of recording and releasing because um, that's just the way way it goes. So again, yeah, David Larson, Larson Jazz and Larson Jazz Music. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today, David. Thanks for your time, your talent, uh, and coming in and just hanging out. Yeah, no problem. Thank it's you. A good time. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much.